Well, maybe it's because I watched more TV than I usually do in the last two weeks with the Olympics on, but I was noticing the different branding companies have during commercials. Every company has a brand, just like every artist has a style. By brand, I mean their identity, what defines or distinguishes them from their competitors, what they're known for. Often a company's branding is communicated in their marketing. We're in the middle of a series right now called The Quotable Jesus, where we're looking at numerous famous sayings of Jesus. And I wonder, what's communicated about Jesus' brand by this statement? The quote for this week is 77 times. And it's actually a response Jesus gives to one of his followers when they ask him, how often should I forgive others? We'll look at the context of what Jesus said in a moment, but essentially, Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. He's not saying that on the 78th time someone offends us, we can just stop forgiving them. Rather, he's saying our forgiveness of others should be limitless. It reminds me of those t-shirts that say, never stop trying, except Jesus' t-shirt would say, never stop forgiving. Now, that may sound all well and good, but we all know that every time we talk about forgiving others, we're on very tricky and difficult terrain. I mean, who among us enjoys the work of forgiving others or finds it easy? Not me. And that's just the normal everyday slights and snubs. What about those who've experienced really difficult things? Sadly, I think the church has sometimes misapplied or given too simplistic an explanation here to what Jesus is saying in ways that have caused damage to people already wounded by painful circumstances. So before we even come to Jesus' words about forgiving others, let's set some ground rules. Let's start with some common misconceptions about forgiveness. Then I think we'll be in a better position to hear Jesus' words. Misconception number one, forgiveness is not denying or minimizing hurt. Well, it wasn't that bad, or it's okay, we're all good. Sometimes we simply avoid the pain by sweeping it under the carpet. We may think we're being a peacemaker, when in reality, all we are doing is suppressing our pain. It would take honesty Patience and courage to tell the truth about how we have been hurt. And frankly, that's a risk we're not always willing to take. It's always a gamble how the other person will respond, whether they will seek to understand or whether they will use that against us in the future and continue to hurt us. But where there's no acknowledgement of the impact of someone's actions on our lives, there can be no forgiveness. Number two, forgiveness is not forgetting. And frankly, that's a really unrealistic expectation to put on people. We forget things that don't matter to us, or perhaps things that were so deeply wounding, we push them back into our subconscious. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is remembering and still forgiving. To put it another way, Forgiving is effective when the wrong is remembered but no longer sets the agenda for the future or consumes people's lives. Number three, forgiveness does not mean we are soft on sin or stop pursuing justice. 
We're going to look at Matthew 18, 21 to 35 today, the last half of the chapter, but I wish we had time to look at the first half of the chapter too, because taken together, this chapter is a beautiful balance of justice and mercy. Mercy is the focus of Jesus' quote, but that's only after he's emphasized justice. Does this sound like Jesus is soft on sin? If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18, 6. Or how about this? If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault to them. Matthew 18, 15. Now, certainly, there are more parameters about how we do that, but make no mistake, just because Jesus is into forgiveness, that does not mean he takes sin lightly. There was a really powerful example of this recently in the news by Rachel Den Hollander, the woman who was the first of over 150 women to accuse former USA Gymnastics coach Larry Nasser of sexual abuse, which he has since been convicted and sentenced to 175 years in prison. She's a Christian and a lawyer, so she's really articulate, competent, and gracious. Her full testimony before the judge is worth reading. She says in her testimony that she extends forgiveness to this man, Christ's forgiveness. But she's also determined in her pursuit of seeing justice for this case so that she can prevent further damage happening to hundreds of other innocent young girls. And indeed, her efforts were significant in stopping his behavior. Forgiveness does not mean we don't seek justice. Lastly, and this is really important, especially in difficult cases, forgiveness is not the same as restoration or reconciliation in the relationship. There is a distinction, and we dare not conflate the two. We can forgive regardless of what the other person does. Reconciliation, however, requires both parties. In cases of abuse, addiction, abandonment or mental illness, it may not be possible or even wise to reconcile with the person every time. Sometimes the more loving thing to do is for people to experience the consequences of their decisions. But even if we choose to redefine our relationship with that person, pursuing healthier parameters, we can still choose to forgive them. So what then is forgiveness? It's giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. It means releasing the bitterness and anger and desire for personal vengeance. It means recusing myself of the role of judge and letting God be the one to deal out justice to this person. I know that I have forgiven someone, not when I don't remember the pain, but when I honestly wish them no harm. A battered spouse may not choose to live with the abuser anymore, to be sure, but she can still indeed wish him well, even as they part ways. With that in mind, let's listen to Jesus' story that he tells in Matthew 18, 21 to 33. I'll make a few comments, and then we'll look at what this might mean for us. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? 
Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Peter suggested seven times of forgiving is not such a bad offer. Since true repentance means turning away from sin, some rabbis at the time limited forgiveness to three times. Peter's offer is more than twice that. Not bad. But in typical Jesus fashion, he takes what seems like a reasonable, even generous standard and ups the ante. I tell you, not seven, but 77. Essentially, don't keep track. Then to illustrate his point, he uses familiar characters from Jewish parables, a king to represent God and servants to represent his people. It's not very apparent to us, but the people listening to Jesus tell this story would have caught how far-fetched this is. For starters, the amount of money the first servant owes is 10,000 talents or 10,000 bags of gold. This is a ridiculous amount of debt, more akin to a state's debt than an individual's. Jesus uses the highest number you can possibly construct with two words in the Greek language, alongside the largest measure of currency at the time, bags of gold. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that one talent is approximately 20 years wages. So 10,000 talents equals roughly 200,000 years wages. Verse 25 is almost laughable. The average slave sold for between 500 and 2,000 days wages. So at best, even throwing in the man, his wife, his kids, and all his possessions, this king is going to recover one one-thousandth of what he has lost. The point of this exaggeration is to show the extent of the debt owed and that there is nothing the man can do to repay his debt. Notice when the first servant pleads his case before the king promising his IOU, the king's response is both swift and far exceeds his request. The man asks for more time to pay off his debt. 
The king knows no amount of time is going to help him. So he forgives the debt completely without hesitation. Problem averted. Until this same man finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred silver coins or denarii. Now, a hundred denarii is about a hundred days wages for the average worker. So the contrast between the two is like 200,000 years of debt versus four months of debt. Or to put it in our context, your entire family's student loans and mortgage compared to $15. Putting him in a chokehold, he threatens, pay me back, to which the second servant pleads, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, Just a minute. Ding, ding, ding. Does that sound familiar? Can't the first servant hear himself in the voice of the second servant? That's exactly what he asked for. But for whatever reason, he can't. The other servants watching this whole thing actually exercise a bit of tough love here. They follow the protocol outlined earlier on in the chapter for addressing sin. And they talk to the king and he's not happy. And the whole point of the parable is summarized in the question asked by the king in verse 33. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? We're meant to feel a sense of disbelief and disgust at this guy. Trouble is, we're all that guy at times. I think we can boil down this passage into two words. Let's start with the first word, forgiven. Forgiven. We're meant to see ourselves in this story. And the first way we're to see ourselves is that we owe a debt that is so high. There is nothing we can do to pay it back. Jewish writers often use the word debt to represent sin, whatever we do against God and his way. So the Lord's prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Many of us here know the weight of huge debts. Loans, mortgages, taxes. If you've recently sold a home, you know what a weight is lifted when that purchase agreement gets signed and that sold sign goes out front of your house. Or when after putting several kids through college, that final payment is made and the paid in full letter arrives in the mail. Burden lifted. Jesus tells us here, like that man, we all owe a massive amount of debt to God. We cannot repay it. But like that man, when we come to God and admit our wrongs, he will swiftly, gladly release us from our debt and free us on our way. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. Our God is a forgiving God. Now, some of us, when we hear the word forgiven, we think, of what? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a decent person. We fail to see how our thoughts, words, and deeds, or lack thereof, have truly hurt others. We so easily make excuses for ourselves while all the while being harder on others. If I'm pulled over for speeding, I want the cop to let me off. Doesn't he know how much I have to do? When you're pulled over, I want him to give you a big fat ticket so you can learn your lesson. Mercy for me, 
justice for you. We have trouble seeing ourselves accurately. I like how one writer put it in context. The distance between being ordinary sinful, what we all are, and extremely sinful, what the other people we don't like seem to be, is like the distance between London and Paris as seen from the view of the sun. It's just not very far. Now, others of us, when we hear the word forgiven, we think impossible. You don't know what I have done. You don't know the recurring addiction. Guilt and shame can weigh so heavily on us that we have a hard time believing God really could forgive us. Friends, the good news, the gospel, is that whether we are out of touch with our sins or overwhelmed by our sins, we can be forgiven by God. We are loved by him, just as this king acted without hesitation, doing far more than the servant requested, so too does God. When we come to him admitting our wrongdoing, he releases us of any debt and restores us to himself. Yes, forgiveness may be a risk with everyone else in our lives, but not so with God. We can count on it. Jesus told lots of other stories about God's love for us, but one of the most famous is probably the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the forgiving father, as it's more aptly named. If you remember the stories about a son who rejects his father, who essentially wishes he were dead, and after he's gambled away all his money and is poor and starving, he returns home, hoping to be received as a mere worker in his father's estate. Instead, he is met by a loving father who runs out to meet him, embraces him, forgives him, restores him into the family, and celebrates his return with a huge party. This is our God. This is God's brand. And forgiveness has always been God's brand. Here's just a few examples from the Old Testament. Psalm 133 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Psalm 138 to 12. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus himself, the very image of God, is the epitome of forgiveness. People flocked to him because of it. He offers hope. He extends grace. He calls people to account, yes, but always with an eye towards restoration and healing. Even when being wrongfully killed for crimes he did not commit, his dying breath is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Years after his crucifixion, this same Peter will write in one of his letters to the early church what that means for all of us. For Christ died once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Those of us who put our trust in Jesus can be forgiven once and for all. And when we are, we cannot help but extend that same forgiveness to others. We can, by his power, forgive. 
That's the second point of our story. And this is what's behind the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or as Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see, this is what Christians are to be known for. This is how we are to be identified. Because we follow a forgiving God, we're to forgive others. If you are new to City Church, let me tell you one thing I can promise 100% you will not find here ever. Perfection. We are not a people who have it all together or who have it all figured out. I was thinking about asking Lee to redo our welcome cards on the table in the lobby to say, welcome to City Church, we're a mess, so are you, join us. (laughs) Perfection is not what marks Christians. What distinguishes the Christian church is not the absence of sin, but the presence of grace. We will hurt one another, and we do. But we are to be a people who give one another a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a however long it takes chance. Taking sin seriously and fighting injustice, but always putting the accent on grace. We are never more like God than when we choose to forgive. And real forgiveness not only finds its basis in God, but it also entrusts all judging to God. Because if you look at our track record as human beings, we're not very good judges anyway. One theologian writes, quote, revenge abandons the principle of measure for measure and acting out of injured pride and untamed fear gives itself to punitive excess. In its zeal to punish, it overindulgently takes from the offender more than what is due, end quote. See, God alone is capable of judging. He alone knows all the internal and external extenuating circumstances. We need to recuse ourselves of that responsibility. And as one friend at City Church says, that's not letting them off the hook. That's putting them on God's hook, and it's a bigger hook. (laughs) This is nothing short of a miracle, friends. Only a truly free person can live with an uneven score. And this is something we do again and again and again, wash, rinse, repeat. Like the endless cycle of laundry, preparing meals or dishes, we engage in the process of forgiveness over and over. For as Henry Nouwen said, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among those who love poorly. We may practice love poorly, but we can be known by our brand. We can be known for forgiveness. So just a few thoughts in closing as we try to get real practical here. Here are just a few steps if you want to grow in forgiveness. First, immerse yourself in God's forgiveness of you. Let that truth wash over you. See yourself as that son or daughter welcomed, embraced, celebrated, despite your running away. Second, see your offender as a fellow human being. One theologian explains, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself 
from the community of sinners. When we are able to see ourselves and our opponent accurately, when the foot of the cross really is level playing field, we will be in a better position to seek and extend forgiveness. Third, enlist the help of a friend or a trained professional. If you're struggling to believe God's forgiveness for you, ask a trusted friend to hear your confession to God to help assure you of God's forgiveness of you. There is something to that confession, friends. It's not because the person has the power to bestow it. It is because it makes that more real for you. Similarly, if you need help walking through the steps of forgiving someone, there are people in our church who have training and experience with that. They would love to walk alongside you in that. We can put you in touch with those people if you'd like. And if you have a particularly deep wound or an entrenched pattern of forgiveness, of bitterness and resentment, you may want to see a counselor. New developments in psychotherapy have made healing from trauma much more hopeful. We would love to help connect you with resources on that journey. Talk with me or any staff pastor if you're interested in that. City Church, our God is a forgiving God, a God of new beginnings, a God who keeps no record of wrongs, a God who has removed our sins as far as the East is from the West. A God who is rich in love, swift in responding to our cry for mercy, giving us far more than we can ask for. He restores us into relationship with him once again. Once we have received that kind of forgiveness, how can we not extend that to those around us? No, it isn't always easy. No, it doesn't happen quickly. No, it isn't a one-time thing. And no, it may not mean we don't make changes to the relationship. But we can be free. We can choose forgiveness because of the love God has shown us. And as we do, we will discover this love transforms us, our relationships, and those around us. Those looking in on the outside who say, man, how they forgive one another. Now that's the kind of brand we want to be known for. Let's pray. Oh God, in our more honest moments, we can see how fall, how much we fall short. We look around at other humans, and we're not so bad, but when we compare ourselves to you, Jesus Christ, the only perfect being, we see how far we are. Would you, by your spirit, help us to have the courage and the humility and the honesty to see ourselves as you do, to see our sin, but even more to see your love and your grace your embracing of us. Lord, for those in this room who need that reminder deep in their bones, that they are loved, that they are forgiven. Holy Spirit, do your job. Help them with that. That we may all be strengthened more, have courage, humility, strength to choose forgiveness. 
We can only do this by your grace. We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.